Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode 55, recorded on October 5th, 2016. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. You know, I just realized one of the things, because when I was saying our names, is I was like, people always think that Fan is my last name or my maiden name, and so they alphabetize me by an F, um, because I say Julie Fan Balzer, and actually with you, Eileen Schubalzer, Shu is your maiden name, and so then that does make sense. You are meant to be alphabetized with an H. So basically what I'm saying is I feel like you're screwing me over here somehow. Just add it to the list. I know. Just so many things to complain about. Um, but yeah, so Feifan is my middle name for anybody who was wondering. It's Chinese. My mother tells me it means unique. For all I know, it actually means like monkey butt or something, but she's told me that it means unique. So I'm going to go with that. What do you think, mom? Are you telling me the truth? You'll just have to live and learn. Oh, man. Maybe it means unique monkey butt. Oh, yeah. There you go. Unique monkey butt. I like that. Okay, so let's see. There's kind of a lot to talk about and kind of nothing to talk about both at the same time. Do you know what I mean? That seems like every day around here. Yeah, all our conversations. Uh, But I thought we could actually start with William Merritt Chase. Let's. So I actually had never heard of William Merritt Chase before. I don't know if there are, you know, Chaseyacs out there who think that's sacrilege and this is like saying something terrible, but I was completely unfamiliar with his name. So the MFA in Boston, that's a Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, is having a huge exhibit. And I do mean it's huge. It's on the basement level. And you just keep walking from room to room to room to room to room. It's a massive collection of his work. And they've done a really interesting job um curating it uh, in the sense that each room is painted a really distinctly different color and the paintings are even hung slightly differently so you have sort of different feelings and moods as you walk through the various rooms which are arranged like in his landscape european phase and his like you know sort of japanese asian inspired phase etc cetera, etc cetera. so i thought that was interesting curatorially speaking um i only took a cursory glance at it i went to the opening night reception and it's always filled with people and it's like crazy and yada yada um so i didn't really take a look and actually this i said to you in the car today this afternoon mom i said i want you to come with me because i think you'd have some interesting stuff to say about him have you have are, do you know his work no so i'm interested to find out i did look online at the mfa.org website but i'm interested to see it well i keep saying that he's john singer Sargent, who of course i think is probably one of the most famous boston painters um, who does beautiful portraits of people with really lively faces and all that kind of stuff, except that it's very tight and finished uh, and completed. And William Merritt Chase has a sort of looser, more painterly feel that I like personally and I gravitate towards because you see the hand of the painter in his work, which I find very interesting. It's kind of like, and he kind of feels a little bit to me to be completely fancy and esoteric here but it's kind of like you know those still lives that brock did where like the background is kind of half painted in but not but you know it's a piece of fabric and so he's sort of bringing some of that into what he's doing with portraiture interesting stuff okay let's go yeah let's go and see and compare also interesting i thought so you can take photos everywhere in the exhibit except for there are certain paintings that have a little sign that says no photography and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, stop I can't saying stop it, stop it. I thought that was surprising curious. or curious. curious that there were certain 
paintings that you were not allowed to take photographs of, especially because there were uh, there was one in particular. I remember thinking, why is this painting so special that you can't take a photograph of it? And then I saw a very similar still life later on that you could take a photograph of. And in fact, I said to my friend who I was there with, I said to her, um, you know, wait, didn't we just see this painting? And she said, no, I think it's a variation. Um, but I assume, and this is an ignorant assumption, so if somebody knows, they should point it out, but my assumption is that it's because some of those paintings are on loan from collections where they maybe do not want photographs floating around. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of as a side note, people ask me all the time about taking photographs places in museums and stuff like that. In most museums these days, as long as you don't use a flash, they're okay with photographs. And in fact, they're usually more than okay with photographs because it's another way for the museum to get people excited you know, to come in and see what's happening. But anyway, that's a side note. I don't know. Do you know why there are certain paintings that might need? No, that makes perfect sense to me. That makes perfect sense to me. Once you own the painting, you own the image. So you get to be the one to decide if it goes out in the world, if it gets put on a calendar, whatever. The artist doesn't reap any financial benefit from it. Okay, I have to argue with you for a second. Okay, argue. Here's my art. Here's my argument, which is I know we talked about this before, and that was my understanding too. But my friend Jen Mason, who used to be the editor of Cloth Paper Scissors magazine, has been listening to the podcasts, Uh-oh. um, and she said to me, "By the way, you're wrong about that." She said her understanding of current copyright law is that the artist does retain that that's the way it used to be, but it has changed. So I don't know. None of us are IP lawyers, so we can't actually say. But it would be something interesting, certainly. Is that retroactive or uh, going forward? Let's see. From this date. I have a legal degree from nowhere, so I'm going to say, sure. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but certainly, I think the uh, Google could probably help us figure this out. Certainly. With a little bit of research. Should we care to do it? Anyway. Well, there's the rub. It is. So this sort of brings me around to... Um, Another question, which is somebody asked me recently, because obviously I've been going to the MFA a lot. I probably go once every, once or twice every week or two, wouldn't you say? Yes. You're you're a museum junkie. Yeah, and that's the schedule I'm on. Um, And somebody asked me, you know, how does it compare to MoMA? And like, it is a little apples and oranges. They're two very different museums. You know, the MFA does have a modern wing, which actually on my most recent... Or maybe it was my penultimate visit there. I went to see some of the modern stuff. Anyway, in in this week's vlog, you'll get a peek. I looked at some Francis Stark and some other um, contemporary pieces. Um, But what I was going to say is there are just two different reasons. I mean, actually, the MFA is ginormous. I mean, truly, truly ginormous. I mean, I can do easily do moment in a day, and I can give you a $5 tour and show you most of the museum, you know? Whereas with the MFA, it's a hike and a half. The place is a labyrinth. You go down one corridor. There's no exit. Somewhere else, there's six exits. Like, you know, you're standing by the tomb of Tutankhamun, so to speak. He's not actually there. That's in London, but I'm just saying. Uh, You know what I mean? You're standing by, like, these ancient sarcophagi and then the next minute you know what I mean you're in Africa and then the next minute you're looking at a doorway from a Dutch house I mean it's kind of it's it's a very um what would you call it overall museum like it covers a ton of territory well I think it's a part of it is its age part of and and the idea of collecting when it started was just to amass items 
And a lot of the items were probably donations from wealthy Bostonians. So they have certain connections that have have caused certain parts of the exhibit of their collection to be really good. For example, they have a ton of stuff from Japan and uh, that's partially because of the Far East trade that they had here in the in the Boston, Massachusetts area. So I think what's happened is they've become they've come into the 21st century with this basic foundation from before and now they're trying to I think change slightly in the in the way they collect and display yeah. I mean I'm, I'm thinking like of two things which is one I went on a tour uh, curatorial tour at the MFA and you can see the post on my blog about a king's ransom and one of the things that was on the tour was all this furniture um, from Versailles essentially um, and in fact, the people from Versailles have come and like stated, we don't have anything that's in this good shape, obviously, because of the French Revolution, mo much of it was destroyed. But this furniture um, was given to the MFA by a Bostonian who had been a, a uh, servant of some kind in Versailles and had taken the furniture with him legally. And so it was in his his rights to give it. But it's one of these weird things like why in a museum in Boston is there this really incredible furniture from Versailles that does not exist in France, you know, its country of origin and places like that. And it also reminds me of going to SF MoMA, um, which is the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and they have an incredible collection of Calder sculpture because it's the donation of a single collector and they have a couple other really good collections but again it's the donation of a single collector and it is uh, sort of an interesting it is sort of a compelling question about why or how individual donors influence museums so that in, so that what you're really seeing is a single person's taste or several single people's taste i mean i suppose you're doing that with a curator anyway so i don't know that it makes a difference but well but now you have different curators for different types of art i mean you might have a someone who does fabric or furniture whereas i suspect in the olden days and that would be probably the 19th and 20 early 20th century you would have people who are more generalists, everybody's become a specialist in every field. I mean, it used to be you would go to the dentist. Now you might go to the endodontist or you might go See, to the periodontist. I, I like how you've gone to an actual real place with it. I was like, oh yeah, it's not just my food Instagram. It's my sweet things food Instagram. It's my cheesy things food Instagram. <laughs> like, it, But it's true. Everyone's a specialist. And, you know, I was thinking about that museum that I went to see in Arkansas. I'm desperately trying to remember the Bridges? name. Bridges? Crystal yes, Bridges? Crystal Bridges, which is one of the Walton daughters of the famous Walmart. Um, it's basically her collection of American art. This and... is very common. Actually, there are a lot of articles, if you go online, about currently wealthy people who've amassed art collections and then they and they have their own curators whom they've hired to work just for them and then they have they build museums so to hold their art i mean and this is not how is this different from isabella stewart gardner 
No, it's exactly you the know? same. And it reminds me of, so last night I was at a museum council steering committee meeting and this, they were, we were, I'm on the events committee. And so this guy suggested an event and he said, I have a lot of friends who have great collections in their homes of art. Maybe we could go on like a little, you know, house tour to see somebody's collection. And he said they have great spaces and they have all this amazing art. And I was thinking, you know, a, that's awesome to hear because this was a young guy talking about he has his young friends who are there. And I was thinking, you know, art collecting is a totally separate kind of thing because there are people who collect art in a thoughtful way, in like a planned way, like you're saying. They have a private curator. They have a, you know what I mean? And they uh, procure art based on this person's interests and value and all that kind of stuff. There are people who see art as a financial investment, so they're always interested in like what's hot, who's hot. There are people who just buy art because they need stuff for their walls. I mean, look at the art fairs that happen every year, you know, where they say, buy a couch-sized painting for $69, you know. Um, or if you look in any Target or Walmart or Marshalls, they have tons of wall art. It's a huge category, you know, for people. I think people like having art in their uh, art in so many ways to approach it. Now, you actually have a lot of art. You, I, people always ask me if you're a crafty person or uh, or whatever. And I always say, I no, am crafty. You are crafty, but in the way the Beastie Boys meant, not necessarily in the way that, uh, <laughs> I mean. But what I was going to say is, I think... Um, I always say, you know, mom is a great art collector and art appreciator. And I think you have a you have quite a collection of art in your home that you've collected over time. But you've gone about it, I think, in a a very uh, different kind of way. Would you like to talk a little bit about how I, your collection? I thought you were going to say peculiar. I just well, I, I am the person who starts from what I like, not is it going to increase in value or anything like that. And I will often buy something without having any idea where I'm going to put it or how I'm going to fit it. Um, and I like stuff that's, well, I have several categories of things. Like I like things that are kind of strange. Yes, you do. Particularly, somehow, I know this is going to get back to you. It has a face or it has eyes. I I have think about it. Think about the connection. I have a house full of things that have faces on them. Uh and maybe that's part of the influence here on you. One year my sister, I I took my mother somewhere uh for a couple of days and when I came back, my sister was in my house and she had decorated everything on the first floor that had a face on it with a little paper party hat because it was my birthday weekend. And there were so many little birthday hats. There were so many. And I've left them in place. Some of them have fallen away, but there's still so many left. I was going to say it's probably been 20 years since that, but there's a million of them everywhere. So I guess that interests me. I like things that are funny. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's why the little hats appeal to me. Um, and I like things that are, have some mystery, which I think actually human eye and the face can have mystery. It's the untold story. So the door that's not really open, but there's a little light coming from it or the woods where there's 
could be all kinds of stories about what's happening. The house where the windows are darkened and you have the sense that you could write an entire short novel about what's going on in that house. That's the sort of thing that I like where I am drawn into it, but I am allowed to interpret it myself. That's my art. Well, I think that you, whenever I've seen you talk about a piece of art in your home, you rarely talk about, oh, the artist is so-and-so and he has work also in blah, 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 and wherever. That's just Except not your style. Except for pieces that I have by friends. Yeah. Most of the time you say, oh, isn't that, somebody will say something, I'll be like, oh, isn't that funny? Or you say, oh, isn't that weird? Oh, doesn't that just strike you? Oh, I love the way that this weird thing, you know what I mean? That's the way that I feel like you've always talked about the art. And as far as art you have that's from friends, you'll say, oh, that's by Pete. He's a great guy, you know, used to be a, a marine diver. And that's, you know, why he does so many sea things, blah, 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 etc. But I think I... uh I would also say you buy a lot of art that is wearable. So that's to say art clothing, art jewelry, that kind of stuff. And even within that realm, I find that you tend to go for things that, again, are asymmetrical, slightly uneven, uh, earrings that don't match perfectly. In fact, I now am uh, on a jag of deliberately. I started by taking earrings where I had lost one and matching them with another earring where I had lost one. And then I have moved on now to where I'm deliberately matching up pairs that have, that I have all the pieces, but I just like the way they look together, even though they're not identical. Uh, there's something about that that which appeals is, to me. Which is not dissimilar from you have a painting hanging in the stairwell of your home, that which is upside down to the way that the artist intended it. But I like it better this way. Right. But you like it better that way. And I think that that is part of the thing of whether it's jewelry or art hanging in your home that you get to decide, you know, what it is, how it is, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to sort of extrapolate this conversation into something larger, which is I think part of the usefulness of going to museums, of collecting art, of looking at art is the ability to define what you like and what you don't, the uh, habit of looking at things. I, I mean, it's just like, I think I started this podcast by saying the, that I liked the William Merritt Chase stuff because it was a looser, more painterly version, you know. Uh, and I think that I know for myself that I am often attracted to art that shows the hand of the painter. And I am rarely attracted to art that is like Goya, where it's so perfect, so smooth, you know, you can't, you can't even tell that a person has been there, you know? I think that's right. And look at your art. And look at my art, which is definitely like that. And, and I, and so I think the interesting thing to me is when I create with you, the few times that I'm able to trick you into it. I often find that when you make something and then show it to me, what you want to tell me about it is how you put a little joke in or where you made something be funny or how it's actually ironic that the person in the photo on the page is looking off the page because that's telling a story of, you know, so it's not different than the art that you collect. 
So what you're saying is I'm a consistent person. Thank you. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we're all consistent people. And it's just another reminder to me that the looking at things is as important as, as and analyzing it and being able to verbalize things is as important to creating and, you know, knowing what you like when you create. And I think the weird disconnect comes when we look at something and then we try to uh, replicate as opposed to extrapolate, uh, there's a lot of eight words. I must be hungry. Um, <laughs> back to food again. I know, we right? We always come back to we food. We always come back to food, baby. Um, you know, uh, what it is from there. So, you know, I like this style, but I'm not going to go home and make a William Merritt Chase. Instead, I'm going to remember that I need to keep my paintings loose instead of tight. That loose is my goal, you know? And so I think what I'm sort of wandering towards here uh, is actually one of the, my favorite classes or a series of classes that I took at MoMA was the studio classes there because you would look at the art, you would get a lecture about the art, then you would go look at the art, then you would make art. And that rhythm really works because I think you uh, it takes like the intellectual in the, in the lecture to sort of some kind of uh, emotional visual thing with the actual art into like the visceral reality of creating you know what I mean and those three steps kind of filter things through for you um, and actually we took a class at the Harvard Art Museums about carbon that did the same the same idea lecture viewing creating and I think, um, so very often what happens is that people are like, where do you find inspiration? How do you not get burnout? How do you, and I think the th thing is, whether I am totally cognizant of it or not, and this may be an unconscious thing that I'm doing, I am taking most often those steps of having like an intellectual um, stimulation or a thought process of some kind, then going through the kind of visual collecting, emotional reacting to stuff, and then the creating physical phase of making. And I think my work is almost always better and stronger if I've really been through all of that instead of trying to push through the deadline to the very, um, to the very last step of just like, let's create something right now. I think that's not unlike, I mean, why would people assume, for example, that you could be a a good chef if you don't eat other people's food why often chefs be, will write about be? they traveled and they found new herbs and new techniques and it stimulated their thinking about their own worker how could you be uh i don't know how can you a be a good, good teacher if you never take a class and you're never a student right i mean i just think you have to be in all phases of whatever it is your passion is. And I like that you separated it into the intellectual piece and then the, uh, stim you know, emotional stimulation, stimulation and then to the actual physical doing whatever it is. Well, it makes me think like one of the reasons we're in the middle of October, which is also known as Inktober. And this is the first year I'm not doing Inktober. Um, and the thing is, Inktober is basically this thing started by this guy, Jake Parker, where you make a draw, an ink drawing every day for every day of October. So for 31 days. 
Um, and it's one of a million different daily projects. There's a woman I follow on Instagram who I love called August Wren, and she started doing a project like two or three years ago where she was going to just do 30 minutes of painting a day. And she just does one little page in her sketchbook. It's a, it, she says it, it's completed when the 30 minutes is up. That's the only rule. It's, it has to just be done. And she now has done that every single day for like three years. Oh my and God. can I just tell you how much better her work has gotten from the time I started following her till now? It is mind blowing. And that's the discipline of every day. I know that, you know, carve December and carving every single day that I'm better on day 30 than I was on day one every single time. I know and I think the reason that those daily projects work, Art Journal Every Day or any of those things, the reason that you get better every time is that process of intellectual to like emotional visual into realization. The thing is, when you do it every day, the intellectual is then happening constantly and it's a processing. And even when you're creating, right, you're moving on from where you started. And then the emotional visual thing is like because you have this project in your mind and it's at the top of your mind and not at the back, it means you're constantly processing stimuli and you're thinking, oh, I could use that tomorrow. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, I, you know what I mean? And then when you get to the actual making, you just have less hesitancy in the decision making process because you're like, I have this thing. I do it every day. I got to just get it done. Boom. Over. You know? So I think, I, I mean, if, if I were to write a scientific book, and this is my TED Talk now that I'm giving about this notion, I think that that process is one that you can you know, uh, shortcut and trim around and do all sorts of stuff, but you have to go through it every single time. It just gets faster if it's daily as opposed to if it's, you know, monthly or weekly. You will post links to those two websites. I think people would be interested. Oh, yeah. To the Inktober and the August run? Yeah. Yeah, I will. I'm writing that down so that I remember to do it because I'm so good that I have no memory and I need to write things down. I write it down because I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever reason, I've written it down so that I know what's happening. Okay. Um, so the other thing that was on my mind to talk about was Halloween. Halloween has become, it used to just be this one day you'd put together a little costume for your kid and... It would be over. But now it's become a ginormous adult holiday. I read something that said people spend more money decorating for Halloween than they do for Christmas now. Hey, I'm just thinking about that. There's a kind of fantasy aspect. You know, there's a sort of let your libido out a little, let your id rule things Uh there's also the idea that anything goes, you you know, transformation, and it's just pure play. Christmas is, a, aside from also being a religious holiday, it's a lot of, well, family it's obligation. It's a lot of work, work, family obligations, uh, tradition. Whereas Halloween is more like play. You just make it up and do whatever you want. Yeah, I think um, I have noticed a lot more Halloween decorations in the stores everywhere from Michael's and AC Moore to Target. You from know. August. Yeah. 
epic and like adult costumes everywhere and Halloween pop-up stores. And I have seen so many more Halloween crafts that people are doing than I've ever seen before in my life. It used to be like somebody would help you make a costume and how to carve a pumpkin. And now it's like, and, and actually I got an email the other day from Wayfair. Mm-hmm. Which I, the, the, the jingle is now playing in my head. It just what I need. Anyway, I've never even been on their <laughs> website, but they, I got an email from them saying, Hey, can we share this pumpkin post? And it was a painted pumpkin post I'd done for like three years ago you know, on our, you know, website, blah, 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 blah. And I was thinking that's fascinating that they're, you know, seeking out and actively recruiting sort of crafty Halloween things for for their website because so many people are doing that kind of stuff, simple painted pumpkins and stuff. There's all kinds of Halloweens. There's the kind of Martha Stewart Halloween where you've you've made this elaborate something and everything is Halloween themed down to the like streets of New York. Everyone is like, a, as we often say, a slutty bumblebee, yes. a slutty whatever you are, but it has to be slutty. slutty. Well, I was in a Whole Foods today and they, so I've seen quite a few now of the pumpkins that are pre-painted for you. So you don't have to do it, but you have a cute pumpkin. That's one. I mean, obviously I understand why the painted pumpkins are more popular than the carved. The carved pumpkins rot and then creatures eat them. The painted pumpkins, the animals don't eat as much and they last a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I was going to say, I not only have I seen the pre-painted stuff, but today at Whole Foods, I saw a pumpkin decorating kit. And it's three mini pumpkins in like a bag. And then you get like some paint markers and googly eyes and stuff in them. And I can see that you buy it and your kids paint and decorate these little mini pumpkins. I've also seen entire like rhinestone uh, things, sheets that you like pull the sheet off and stick it on your pumpkin. And now your, your pumpkin has like a rhinestone face. Bedazzled pumpkin. Yeah, bedazzled pumpkin. And I've seen a ton of people looking for SVG cuts and stuff for their die cut machines to do all kinds of stuff. Um, It's just really turning out to be a really much bigger holiday than expected. And the interesting thing to me is it actually is a – I don't know if all holidays are crafty holidays, but people tend to get crafty around the holidays is my experience. You know, people who have never created before are suddenly like, oh, it's Christmas. I'm going to make cookies, even though I don't normally decorate cookies. Oh, I'm going to make an ornament for the tree. Oh, I'm going to make a gift. Oh, I'm going to make a decoration, you know? I think that's right. And I think there's something else I just realized about Halloween. It's like a gender neutral holiday. Very few boys slash men are going to go crazy making Valentine's Day decorations, but they will participate in Halloween decorations. Yes, that's true. And I do think that the lack of obligation around Halloween makes it a sexy holiday because Christmas is family. Thanksgiving is family. Valentine's Day is your sweetheart. You know, Easter has obligations. Jewish holidays, Passover, Shana, Yukor, those are all family obligated. Like and Halloween is one of the few things maybe, uh, you know, like St. Patrick's Day that doesn't really have obligations. But what do you do on St. Patrick's Day? Wear green and drink some beer, you know, which may not appeal to everyone. But Halloween is with your contemporaries. Right. 
It's like the rise of Friendsgiving that a lot of people have been doing the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or the Friday after they have a Thanksgiving meal with their friends as opposed to their family. Mm-hmm. Friendsgiving. But see, Mom, my family is my friend, so I have one oh. Thanksgiving because I love you so much. If you could only hear my beating heart. <laughs> I, can, I can feel the sarcasm dripping from you. I will say this. Thanksgiving has always been favored by me over Christmas because of the lack of having, you know, presents and all this stuff. It's just, there's just a lot of work involved with some holidays. I thought it was its proximity to your birthday. That well, that, of like course, I do feel that everyone in America is secretly celebrating my birthday. In fact, in fact, on Thanksgiving, what we're thanking for is the giving of you. I think you've got it. Exactly. After all these years, you finally understand. <laughs> um, so I I don't have much else that I was on my mind. I don't know if you have something that you wanted to talk about. No, but I wonder if you uh, want to talk about uh, your upcoming things you're going to be teaching in. Oh, yeah. So I'm teaching in San Jose next week on Monday and Tuesday. I know that it's Yom Kippur and I've gotten some emails from people saying, hey, it's Yom Kippur. I can't come. And I say, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a bad Jew. And I totally forgot it was Yom Kippur when I booked those dates. Um, but I hope anybody else who's around San Jose will come. It's two archerling classes. There's one two-day class during the day and then there's an evening class spread over two nights. Um, and then I am going to – where else am I going? It's teaching. New Orleans. Orleans. Well, I'm going to New Orleans for the Golden um, Artist Training, which I'll be really looking forward to talking about. And actually, I think we're scheduled to do a podcast kind of in the middle of that week. So I think the next podcast will be from New Orleans. You'll get to hear all about that fun. Um, I'm going to Quilt Festival in Houston at the end of the month. So if you're in Houston and you're planning to go to Quilt Festival, I will be there in the All Brands booth demonstrating the scanning cut so you can come and say, hey, I'd love to see you. And by the way, even if you're not a quilter, if you're a person who's interested in art at all, Quilt Festival is one of the most impressive art exhibitions. It is enormous. Your mouth will drop. You can take lots of photos. There are artists who have made these quilts to talk about. And it ain't your grandma's granny squares. Although there are granny square quilts there that will make you also think, wow, this is amazing. Um, but it's really an amazing event just to see. So I'll just give that plug out. For there, are, the there are two parts of that, right? What? That quilt festival. Well, quilt is... market is for uh, quilt market happens before quilt festival. Quilt market mm -hmm. is for industry, and that's it's like CHA, but for the quilt market, obviously. Um, quilt festival is open to the public. You just buy a ticket, um, and it's a really great experience. I did not expect it to be as I love quilting, but I don't have the same level of appreciation for like beautiful stitching and stuff that some people do. But there are so many art quilts and dolls and sometimes they have clothes and special exhibits and just amazing work that people have made, men and women. They have lectures. They have classes. It's really, it's a good experience. Plus they're shopping. 
And who doesn't, you know, the shopping is huge. I actually bought one of my favorite pairs of sandals ever, actually, at Quilt Festival last year. Sandals? Yeah. So this guy, he was like, he was like, you look tired. I was like, oh, thanks. And he... <laughs> Always a good opening know, right? Line. And he's like, no, really, we have these shoes. They're the best shoes on earth. I sell tons of them at conventions in particular because they're fantastic for walking. They're super comfortable. I was like, I have a really wide foot. There's no way this is going to work. So he was like, come. He's like, well, why don't you try them on? I was like, I'm on a break from the booth I don't have the time he's like we'll come back later so I went back later because I was like let's see and so these are really expensive sandals they were like $220 and I was like this better these better fly me to Mars or this will have been the biggest ripoff on the face of the planet right but he was so like, "So are you now? Are you now speaking?" He to was us like, from I swear, "Yes, I am." So honestly, I'm not kidding. They are the best sandals I've ever had because, and here's the why: they're not like the most beautiful sandals on earth. They pretty much look like Birkenstocks. But the thing is, I have walked like eighteen thousand steps in them. You know, in a day. I've taken them on lots of trips where I've been traveling and walking and my feet do not hurt afterwards. They're as comfortable as wearing sneakers or some other shoes like that. And so that is a total win because then you can wear sandals instead of having to wear sneakers everywhere. And you really do have problems. And I really do have Fred Flintstone feet. I always say it's like throw away the shoe and wear the box. I like the squarest feet you've ever seen in your whole life. I mean, there, I swear to you, when I step, you know how people have that lovely thing with like the little toes and the front and the back and like it's such a pretty footstep. I just have a big square foot. Oh, you mean your footprint? Yeah, my footprint. Yeah. Anyway, sad story. Okay, so th- anyway, but I'm not telling you to go there to buy sandals. They also, of course, I bought some jewelry at Quilt Festival that I love. <laughs> um, they have tons of obviously quilting stuff from machines to, I mean, obviously I'll be selling a scanning cut. Um, there will be fabric up the wazoo. There's usually stencils and just lots of fun stuff. So it's shopping and seeing and schmoozing and classes and demos. Okay. Then after that, I am going to Baton Rouge. And in Baton Rouge, I will be teaching a scan and cut class as part of the Bayou Sewing event, which is all sewing, embroidery, scan and cut. Um, It's a whole two days. You basically take six hour and a half classes from six different quote unquote celebrity instructors um, and then you walk away with six finished projects. So I think that'll be awesome. That, I assume, is open to the public as well. That is open to the public. And my understanding is that it's not like you have to be an expert. Like, if you ever wanted to do embroidery or thought about getting uh, – this is this is um, sewing machine embroidery where the machine does the embroidery for you. So if you mm-hmm. ever thought about buying any of these fancy machines, this is, like, a great event to go and you get hands-on. Everybody gets their own machine to try out, you know, to work on, et cetera, et cetera. So I think are you Are you – so is your class about sewing machine? No, brother my sewing class machine? is using the Brother Scan and Cut, um, and we're going to be doing a little heat apply thing where we're going to be scanning and handwriting and using the heat apply and weeding it and using the new hook tool and adhering it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then after that fun at the Bayou Sewing event, then I am headed to Cleveland for Ah, filming yeah the next season of make it artsy which i think will be really awesome and i'm excited about that we're starting to get all the guests lined up and the projects so i'm looking forward to that a lot 
People keep asking, where can they find the the show? I know you've said it on your blog, but I think it bears okay, so some repetition. Okay, the, so the way that PBS works is it's all programmed, you know, locally. And so what's happening is the feed just went live last week. Some stations are starting to pick it up. It will be on Create Network. If you are a Create TV, the PBS Create Network watcher, it just, uh, we're not sure how long it'll be. It may be a couple months. If you would like to get it on your local station, if you write or call your local station and request the show, that just makes things move along a little more quickly. You can also watch online for free at makeitrc.com. There's a new episode every week. You can also buy DVDs for like $39. You get the whole season, which honestly, how many times have you spent $39 on an online class, you know, and you certainly don't get that many projects. It's 13 episodes, three to four projects per episode. You know, I can't do math, but that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) um and then in december i'm going to tampa to whimsadoodle i'm going to be teaching some classes there which i'm looking forward to very much so and then the travel keeps going into january so it's going to be a little bit crazy and fun of an october november i'm going to be in and out a lot but um i think it's gonna be a good time well all right then yeah Anyway, um, so I, I guess we should wrap up. Is there anything else you would like to say? Words of wisdom, Mom? No. I will say this. Your travel schedule, I know people think it sounds glamorous, but on your, returning from your last trip, for example, how late was your plane? It was delayed. Know, like it was late, three and a half hours late. It was so not glamorous. The whole airport was closed. Yeah. And you sent a photograph of just like the empty, totally empty airport. That's where the glamour factor starts to fade a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. But I'm still going to go to New Orleans and eat every beignet. I'm not going to be on Weight Watchers for the week that I'm in New Orleans. I accept that that will just be a fact. Gumbo, I think, here I come. I think the, the, the Weight Watchers thing, the fact that you can do anything remotely like that while you're traveling is un is unbelievable because the food is never going to be what you want it to be. It's true. Certain towns there just isn't. Certain towns are all about the pork fat, uh, man, which is it tastes yeah. good, but it ain't a good Weight Watchers choice. So yeah, I do yeah. my best, but you know the other thing is like not to feel guilt. It's the same thing as like either make the art or don't make the art, but don't feel guilty about not making the art. So it's like either eat the cookie or don't eat the cookie, but don't feel guilty about eating it. You know, I just make the choice. So uh, that's my wisdom for the day, you guys. Don't feel guilt. It's a terrible feeling. <laughs> and if you'd wow. like more incredible saved wisdom like that, you can find me at ballsdesigns.typepad.com. And do leave us your comments or questions at ballsdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you the next time from New Orleans on the Adventures in Arting podcast. Podcast.